Hi, I'm Marion Ellis, and this is the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. In this podcast, you'll hear from surveyors of all flavours, businesses of all sizes, and also conversations with people working in the business of surveying, supporting the work we do. We'll be chatting about what matters in our work, our career journeys, and learning how surveyors make a social and physical impact every day through their work. Don't forget to rate, review and follow the podcast or pop over to Google and leave us a review. You can also show your support at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the Surveyor Hub. Today I'm speaking to Professor John Edwards, a practitioner, researcher and educator working in property and construction with specialisms in building pathology, energy efficiency and dealing with older and historic buildings. John is an author and co-author of many standards on historic buildings and retrofit, and he's also a director of Edwards Hart Consultants and professor of practice at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. Welcome to the podcast, John. Uh, now, you. Now, you're a professor. Do people call you professor? Sometimes they do. I don't how, how do you, require how, it, of course. How do you feel about being a professor? Uh, I think it's a great accolade, to be honest. I mean, I've been working in the industry for a long time. I like to think that uh, I'm not just a follower, but I provide some leadership in certain areas. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been recognised as, if you like, um, uh, one of the thinkers in our sector of how we're going to continually improve the way we do things. And I think that is part of a professor role. But another part of it, of course, is to be able to pass on knowledge to others in a way in which people will enjoy it being passing on and also in order that they get the most out of any training session or education session. And, and I've been at it a long time. I've been delivering, I've been involved in education since the 1980s. So I was involved in it at quite an early age. So it's taken me a long time to, to reach that professor role anyway. And, and is that um, awarded from a particular university? Then? Yes, it's awarded from the University of Wales, Trinity St. David. So um, the campus I go to, is in Swansea, SA1, which is, uh, I suppose, most of the time I would be in the Construction Wales Innovation Centre, which is where my area of expertise is set within the university. Now, for anybody listening to this podcast, I need to apologise in advance because I'm actually from North Wales and I'm very fickle with my accent. So there's a chance that by the end, we, by the end of this conversation, my accent may have changed and I might have slipped uh, into a, a very Welsh accent. I live in uh, what I call Middle Earth now, which is just outside Milton Keynes. And I've been everywhere. So um, the accent goes. But um, if anybody's listening and wondering what you're on about, <laughs> that's why. So I was really keen to have you on, John, because I saw, well, there's two things. One, I saw quite a bit of your content being shared on LinkedIn and some of the things that you were talking about and um, commenting on. And also a few surveyors reached out to me and said, you should get John Edwards on the podcast, hence we've um, we've got this booked in. And you specialise in, I guess, uh, uh, environment, sustainability. How, how would you describe it? Well, uh, you know, I find myself getting involved in these things. I've been working in this sector for a long time, and I do all sorts of different things, even do high-rise remediation. But certainly when we all started talking about retrofit quite a few years ago now i realized when i was thinking back to my time in the 1980s i was retrofitting in the 1980s 
we weren't doing it to save the planet. We were doing it to save money. But in terms of building fabric and building services, I was involved with retrofitting buildings and then uh, slowly and steadily got involved in older buildings and historic buildings and started doing the same thing again. But we weren't calling it retrofit. Mm. And it's it's funny, really, because um, when I came off the tools, because I was originally I was a bricklayer, um, <laughs> and I got a job as um, a trainee building surveyor, and I wanted to go and run projects and do all that sort of really, you know, great sort of stuff, you know. And they put me in a, an advisory section where most of the time we we're analysing defects and problems that other people couldn't resolve or didn't have the resources to resolve. And I didn't realise it at the time, but I actually was working in building pathology. But we weren't using that term either. So I find myself working in retrofit and building pathology before I ever heard those terms because we weren't using them. But obviously with climate change, I would say my expertise in older buildings and retrofit come together very well, as well as that knowledge of building pathology, because you need all those things. And certainly where historic buildings are concerned, if you want to make any changes, you've got to justify them and justifying them in a technical sense as well. So with that sort of background, it puts you in a very good place to actually say, look, this is the way we should be understanding buildings. This is the way we should be treating buildings and not treat retrofit if it's just a very basic thing like, you know, slapping some insulation on a wall. You know, it's a very dangerous thing, if anything. Yeah, and, and I just got to ask you specifically, what what is retrofit? Well, there are lots of people using definitions which really do stretch the Oxford Dictionary, but I like to use words that people can actually go into a dictionary and see what they mean. And retrofit basically is adding something to a building that did not have it when it was constructed. That's all that what retrofit is. And what I say is all the time, it should never just to be just be about retrofit, because there are lots of other things we can do to buildings to improve their energy performance, like putting them into good repair, like reinstating their original performance characteristics. If it's an older building, removing all those modern materials and modern insertions, which are causing problems in terms of defects, in terms of their energy performance. And that's the way we should be looking at improving the energy performance of buildings and not just sticking to that word retrofit all the time. Yeah, it's much broader. And I think, you know, I, I speak to a lot of surveyors and homeowner myself. I've got a Victorian property as we're recording this now. I've got sash window, single glaze. And you look at it, ultimately, we all live in properties. So we all get to experience what it's like as we're recording this it's in the middle of a heat wave. You're looking a lot cooler than I am today. And, you know, I think this this year will really have brought it to the fore for many people. And in many ways, it's a shame that, you know, global warming and the climate is actually so nice in the UK because we don't get nice weather like this. But it's very much on everybody's mind. It's being talked about wider. But for me, there seems to be a huge gap between explaining what it is, what's happening on a scientific and, and global level, and then what individual homeowners can do to make a difference. And I don't think ever it's been very well communicated how we look after the environment. You know, for, for change to happen, we had to properly ban and charge money for carrier bags at supermarkets, for example. You know, it's sort of that, that fiscal change needs to, uh, to come into force companies and, and people to do it. 
So I think there's a big gap in understanding, but then also creating a structure and mechanism for people to go out and make a difference to their homes and make a difference to their, their business. And it seems ever so complicated. Well, uh, and it is complicated, to be honest, but um, I think uh, we all have a role to play in making the messages clear and simple. I've been delivering a lot of training in um, in Europe in recent months, and in some of those countries, well, you know, they're, they are being very, very hot indeed, to be honest. I was in Madrid, where it was 40-odd degrees. But when you walk around Madrid and walk around any lots of other places uh, where you have very warm climates, then you notice they got shutters to keep the heat out. In the UK, if anybody got shutters, then it's only on the inside of the building when it should be on the outside of the building. Uh, so solar shading and that sort of thing is very, very big in hot climates. We will need solar shading in the UK. And I've been saying this for years. And if anybody comes on my training courses, they'll realise that. But the other thing that we don't focus on much either is thermal mass. And uh, if you go, I was in Cascai in Portugal delivering a course at the Presidential Palace and to their staff there in retrofitting older and historic buildings. And I said, I'm getting quite warm at the moment because uh, the air con stopped working. And so what I did, I leant up against the wall and think, God, that's nice and cool because that wall has got thermal mass. It's a solid masonry wall, hard plaster on the surface. That's great. If you go into a building in the UK, you stand up against the wall, you, you're not going to get that coolness because you'll have dot and dab plastered walls or you'll have internal wall insulation. And so when we think about things like internal wall insulation, we don't think about the loss of that thermal mass in the summer. Because with solar shading, good passive ventilation, uh, air crossing over surfaces which do have thermal mass can, can help provide some assistance in keeping the building cool. And where so we don't focus on that. We don't focus, not many of us focus it on it in terms of uh, our professional knowledge, expertise and advice. Uh, and certainly we're not telling homeowners about it. And another thing is that um, I think about when we've got this heat wave is decrement delay. You know, if you use, um, you know, if if you think about um, uh, roof spaces, uh, rooms in the roof, whereby we're trying to make them as warm as possible, as warm as possible in the summer. Sorry, in the winter, not mm. in the summer. <laughs> in the summer, we got another problem, and that's overheating. Yeah. When we're thinking about the sort of insulation material we should be looking at in such a location, we want dense materials like wood fibre boards, maybe like sheep's wool, maybe like uh, cellulose and not lightweight insulation products because they haven't got that decrement delay. If we've got a decrement delay of between 8, 10 hours, then, you know, when the sun's beating down on the building, you know, by the time this going to have much of an effect on the inside, the sun has gone down. And that's why we need to be looking at things like that right now. But if many of us as professionals don't really focus on this issue much, then... How can we expect the ordinary person in the street to think about these issues? And the other thing is, we're just talking about retrofit all the time. But, you know, what about the way we use buildings? You know, the you know we're in the wintertime, why are we heating all our internal spaces? Uh, why are we not keeping the curtains closed to keep the heat in, in spaces which are not getting any beneficial daylight? And lots of things. We could talk all day about those particular things. But we no, no, we don't. Well, we do. We just get really confused and then it becomes really hard for people then to take action. And so it seems to me there's one part is everything new that we build going forward and making sure that that's 
writer sufficient and future proof there's looking at the the past which is the whole retrofit side of things and you know there are challenges and arguments on that you know we'll talk a bit about traditional and period property i'm sure you know but how, you know how how practical cost efficient and all of those things are and you're absolutely right it's then how we actually use the spaces you know that we live in that we work what's effective and there's got to be those change and and i guess what I see is people looking to government or industry bodies or leaders to say, how do we do this? Whereas they're almost turning around to us and saying, well, what do you want to know? You know, and so it almost sort of feels as though there's a bit of a, a deadlock or impasse in actually practical things happening. And But I'm very much of the view of, you know, you start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And so long as it's not, detrimental and we we don't know until we don't know I guess we need to be doing something and even small things like signposting people to I mean so if I think about surveyors going out doing their surveys for house purchase and you know those kind of things they can be helpful it doesn't have to come under you know advice it's just information and signposting people to useful websites government guides or whatever on on things that that can be done and even that's a start but I do believe that you know if you think about the number of homes surveyors and valuers go in and out of every single day in the UK and even if they made one change or recommendation the amount of impact that has the potential to have you know then starts to to see things change and you um you have a have a movement and I'm not you know this is a, a learning journey for me to talk about this and to to learn about this i've recently been doing um i'll pop a link to it in the show notes a, a funded course called um get to net zero or something like that with your business it's a business course with, with cranfield and it's really good but it's ever so complicated <laughs> at the same time you know I, I work from home there are things that i can do but there's one guy on the course and he runs a microbrewery and so he's thinking about all the different component parts and where do they come from and energy and, and all of those things. And so there's much more help that's needed. So it seems to me that there's a huge opportunity for people to get involved, add this to their service or at least signpost people. But you've got to start with being educated. And I think particularly for surveyors you know, who, who listen to this, this podcast, if you're not trained or you've not been on a retrofit course or something like that, you need to be even just for awareness and, and to keep up with what's going on in, in the industry. Do you see that there's a lack of knowledge in, in terms of, you know, technical professionals of understanding all of this? In a major way, to be honest. I mean, there are lots and lots and lots of exceptions. But what, the one thing that worries me is that um, a lot of the standards and documents we're producing are not good enough. Um, and even the other week, there was a professional institution, one which I'm not a member of, were pointing people towards this article on on a case study on retrofitting and an older building, and I started reading. Really, I think, how can a professional institution recommend people to be using this insulation, which is incompatible with the building, and they're putting it over as best practice? So, if you've got professional institutions can't get it right, then you know, I think we're in a sorry place, to be honest. And, he, and even when you look at um, you know standards that we're working to. I mean, I'm I'm a panel member of the, of the BSI standards on on PAS 2038 for non-domestic buildings, which is not a bad document. But I'm also on the panel producing PAS 2035 for domestic buildings, 
Now, past 2035 has brought us into a much, much better place than where we were before. But it's far from perfect, and there are lots of issues and problems with it that hopefully they get resolved over a period of time. But there must be consensus amongst people who are producing all these documents that these changes should take place. And very often, because we produce things through consensus, we don't make the changes which are necessary. So we're stuck with standards that are not quite good enough. And it's said to me often that, uh, well, John, you know, you've got to think about the supply chain. The supply chain, uh, the supply chain could cannot meet those standards. So, well, I'll tell you what, what does that say about this country? If we've got a supply chain who can't meet the standards that we really need, then we'll end up doing work to buildings, which is just not good enough. And this is where I say, yet. You know, the supply chain can't meet it yet. Mm. Yes. Because we've got to be doing something about it to change. It's not just it's not just a case yeah. of going on a course and working out and understanding things. This is almost a systemic change in the way that we do things and, and how all the component parts come together. So how does it you may or may not know this, I don't know, but how does it we talked about, you know, the, the institution and I know that that particular article, which I had something to say about when I saw it. How does the guidance come out? Does it come out from like a is there a the one technical authority? Is there a government department? Or is it the different institutions and bodies coming together? Because we need one source of the truth and information we can trust. Yeah. Well, BSI produced a lot of these documents and uh, the PASIS publicly available specifications are funded by base UK government. So they make sure, they supposed to make sure that we got the right sort of people on the panel. And it's difficult. I mean, there were over 60 people on the panel producing past 2035, which is a ridiculously high number. And now they're bringing it to quite a low number. A lot of people are very unhappy about But they are produced through consensus and they are produced through consultation as well. But there's other documents which are produced by base, for example, internal wall insulation, uh, where there's a few issues I got concerned about there, like the lack of mention of thermal mass benefits, are not produced through consultation. So base put a panel together. And hopefully they got the right complexion of expertise, but sometimes they haven't. So you can have a document that maybe is brilliant in some places, but not as good as good as it, good as it should be in, in others. You know, some people might say, well, that's life, isn't it, really? But but when there is the knowledge out there that could improve those particular documents, then that knowledge should be sought to make sure we're going to produce standards, which mm. are as good as they can be, but obviously in a reasonable way. I mean, we're not going to be creating Rolls Royces everywhere, you know, because we haven't got the money to. And when I'm delivering my two-day course, for some odd reason, I always get somebody from Glasgow on my course, always. <laughs> and we've had some really, really good people. We had an architect there from John Gilbert Architects who um, who, were, who were excellent in this field of, of retrofitting traditional buildings. And they've been doing some work on tenements in Glasgow. Fantastic, to the NFIT standard, which many of you will know, is the equivalent to passive house where retrofit is concerned. And then there are other people coming on my course in Glasgow say, well, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, but we'll never have enough money to do it that way. So we know what we know what really, really good practice looks like, but we can't afford it. But do we really know what, you know, rubbish practice looks like? Yes, we do, because we see examples all around us. There's a well-known example in um, Preston, Lancashire, where you know hundreds of homes were left uninhabitable after retrofitting, and closer to home where I am in South Wales, in my stake, a hundred homes were left very damp 
following retrofit. So we know what that standard looks like as well. So what we must do is the best job we can do in the circumstances with the money that we've got. And we can only achieve that if we've got the right sort of standards in place and we've got the right levels of competencies demanded within those standards. And sometimes we're not quite asking for the right level of competence in all areas, which I think is a problem. I think the that's really interesting. And we'll, I'll get the details off you for some of the things that you've mentioned and uh, pop them in the the show notes because I know people like to um, to follow up. But I think that's interesting because when it comes to creating guidance and the rules, you've got that authority somewhere to to do that, and that's important because people are relying on that guidance, which adds a layer of legal complexity and money involved, which always changes the the pressure. And it gives people certainty as to what they can then do with their businesses, what the opportunities are, et cetera. And I wonder almost as though we need to rethink how we even do that, because I think you're right. If you don't have the right people on the panel, the right experts, and certainly if it's not diverse, but you're pulling from a pool of actually there aren't that many knowledgeable experts in a particular area, you know, you're always going to struggle, but you've, it, it, you're working with what you've got now. And you, you know, each of these documents or guidance, anything that's put out, it's, it should only ever be a working version. And now we know we do better. And it's almost sort of approaching it as a as a leadership think tank, if you like, rather than this is the way to do it. And and we might need to change our culture and approach to do that. But also, it's got to be very much two way, two way thinking. You know, if we have one particular method is the correct way or the, the way that's promoted now. And if we discover that it causes problems, we need to have mechanisms in place to say, okay, we've just got a development now that, that's inhabitable. We've learned. And to have that constantly come around, that sort of two-way communication. And, and that's an uncertain way of working, but that's the, the quickest way, I think, to have, to have real change. And again, you know, then there's the, you know, and a we think about spray foam insulation, you know, there's the insulation itself, which might tick some boxes, but then you've got the whole installation, which is often a problem. And that's something that we see often on the surveyor hub. But then also that material, how do you get rid of that? Because we're just creating problems. So it seems like there's a real rethink in terms of how it's all approached. And, and maybe even that's the place to start rather than What's the best advice we can give people? Well, well, in, in fairness to BLSI, these publicly available specifications are reviewed, you know, every eighteen months or so. But we don't very often see all the all the improvements that we need to see in those particular documents. My biggest bugbear is older buildings because you know all buildings throughout their lifetime will have some changes taking place to them. And if you've got modern type buildings, then you know that the sort of work and the sort of materials being applied is going to be compatible with the modern building. Because in modern day construction, nearly all of the time, we use vapour impermeable materials, which are suitable for modern vapour impermeable construction. But when it comes to older buildings, then we're using modern materials on them. And forget about retrofit. Let's just think about, you know, replacing lime render with a cement render, you know, taking up timber floors, putting concrete floors in their place with damp-proof membranes. I mean, I, and I, as I say to people, I, I believe most people in the construction industry, or nearly all of them, don't really understand traditional buildings. And the evidence I've got is what I see all around me Whenever I go into a property, more often than not, unless it has special protection, it would have been treated like a modern building. 
And it's the same sort of thought that goes into retrofit, I'm afraid, that people, uh, not everybody in retrofit is from construction in the first place, but, you know, the vapour impermeable insulation materials are often much cheaper than the other materials. And, and the way it's all been set up is flawed anyway, because if you look, because the energy company obligation scheme, as, as many of you will know, is about the energy suppliers paying for the retrofitting of homes which are principally occupied by families suffering from fuel poverty. Now, anybody working to eco must comply with PAS 2035. PAS 2035 says you need compatible materials with the original building fabric. Great. So if you've got an older building, you can have to use vapour vapor permeable insulation materials. But in Eco, I'm not too sure what Eco 4 is going to say because it's only just coming out now. But Eco 3, the, 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 the third version of Eco, says that you need long-term guarantees for insulation materials. So what and you can't get these long-term guarantees for nearly all of the materials which are suitable for older buildings. So what do people do under Eco? Well, I can only tell you what they tell me, and I've had lots of them on my courses, and they all tell me, everybody I've asked. Well, John, we've got to use the materials with a long-term guarantee. So you've got government, government's part of this, not joining up the dots. Past 2035 quite rightly states compatible materials are necessary, but ECO says you need a long-term guarantee. So you end up with materials which are incompatible. So even today, there'll be lots and lots and lots of retrofit work going on, which is fundamentally flawed and risky, but it's still going on because we can't get our act together and, and do things properly in terms of the rules, regulations and standards. Does that make you angry? Well, well, I could be angry about lots of things. Really. <laughs> I, I would say I'm annoyed. I'm, 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 I'm very annoyed that people can't see sense and at the very high levels they can't see sense. And, I, and sometimes if I'm a little bit cynical, I do wonder why certain things are written in certain ways but i don't like to be too cynical because then i might get depressed and i don't want to be depressed about it well yeah that's what i was thinking because you know you mentioned this summer you've been traveling all over the place and i imagine you've learned a lot you know about different countries and how they they approach things and you know there are a lot of people out there who do get climate anxiety you know as to what can we do about it and and you're in a position now to help others, influence, you know, does it feel like quite a hard slog or do you feel well, optimistic about the future? Well, from a personal point of view, I mean, I have the mindset I'm going to learn something new every day and I don't never close my eyes off to that. So I'm ready to learn all the time, no matter who I meet. If it's a classroom full of people who don't know an awful lot because they haven't got much experience, I'll probably learn something from one of them, even if it's a different way of thinking about, about something. And when I go across Europe uh, delivering courses, I do learn from other people. I learn some good things and I teach them what I know. And I also realise that the good people in the UK are very good. There's a lot of expertise in the UK. There's not enough of it in terms of quantity but there's a lot of good people in the UK who understand buildings and understand what to do do to them it's just that they're not always um they're not always utilized and mm. they're not always listened to because I understand all the buildings very well very very well indeed but can I get other people to listen to me and agree with me not all the time and that's the problem because 
most people, their mindset is in new construction, new materials. And John, you're an historian type of person. You know that we got to do things which are good and proper for today. Well, actually, I'm more, I'm more than just somebody who understands the past. I also understand the future, and the future not may not be very good if we don't do this work properly right now. And that's my response. But still, you know, when you consider that, um, if you look at the definition of a of a traditional building in past 2035. It's a good definition. And it's a similar one in past 2038. It's a building with walls which are vapor permeable that absorbs moisture, releases moisture, or a timber frame building of uh, pre-1919 date. In Iran, that's not word for word. That's around about that. Now, if you marry that up to some data by BRE, about a third of our building stock in the UK is of traditional construction. Most people use the pre-1919 date, which is only because of a housing act in 1919. And so it's about a quarter. But even a quarter is big, but a third is massive. So how come when we're actually looking at the education we give to people, when we're looking at um, the panels we're producing, the producing standards and guidance, how come there's only a tiny, tiny proportion of expertise on older buildings when they are quite a big proportion in reality? And bearing in mind, most people in mainstream don't properly understand traditional buildings. You know, people are treating older buildings as if they're a niche. Well, mm-hmm. 10 or 12 million of them is too big to be a niche, but that's the way they're being treated, unfortunately. And that that should change, but people like me, not just me, there's lots of people like me, and on all, all the UK heritage bodies have been saying the same for years, and I've worked for two of them, I've worked for Cato, I've worked for English Heritage. We were saying it constantly, but we still can't can't get people to listen to us including governments, I'm afraid. I think this is actually at the heart of it because, you know, I mentioned it's a diverse panels and I wonder how much bias is in there, you know, of um, um, prejudice. And and that's natural in a way where we're humans. But Maybe we've got some... invested interests, you never know. Well, yeah, yeah, those little financial <laughs> gains you might get. But it's being able to come to, together in a different way respect everybody respect the knowledge and pooling together and for me that takes leadership and I think it's very much a culture change and that's the only way it's really going to happen yeah interesting it is is a culture change to be honest and when I think about I mean on my training courses 90% say they're they're good or excellent there's some people say I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm telling them something which is completely different to what everybody else mm. is and they think I'm talking nonsense because they um, just don't believe it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a too big a gap and they don't trust it. And so there's a lot to do around that. I'm um, a big fan of a chap called Sidney Decker and he talks a lot about human failure. He um, has written, he's a professor in Australia and he's, oh, another professor, and has written lots on, uh, you know, when there's... Um, health and safety incidences on oil rigs and all of those kind of things. You know, how does that happen? Why do people make mistakes? Why do they not follow the rules? And he talks about you've got to get inside the tunnel where that person is and see it from their view. And I think that's a a key thing I think we're going to have to to look at if we're going to make this change and to chip away at it is – what does it mean and what's the impact and what can that person, you know, I often talk about a surveyor on a wet Tuesday in Margate, you know, what can they do? What can a homeowner do? All these different people and sort of get in the tunnel so we can see their perspective, because although we might have rules to follow, there's human nature 
um, at, at the end of the day. And I think until we we get there, um, that's we, I think we'll we'll struggle. You mentioned Cadu, and um, tell me about that. So you you're on a board with them, or have you worked with them? No, I, uh, prior to doing this job, which I've been doing for about eight years, I was the director of Cadu, responsible for our estate. So. I was responsible for managing 129 historic sites. So th- this is a, an organisation in Wales that looks after historic yeah, it, properties? Yeah, it's, uh, it's the Welsh Government's Historic Environment Service. It's equivalent to, I suppose it's not equivalent to Historic England. It's a st- equivalent to a combination of Historic England and English Heritage, uh, equivalent to Historic Environment Scotland, because they do everything that CADU does, yeah. Mm. And... Um, uh, I was interested in that when I when I've been stalking you on uh, on LinkedIn because I did a degree in um, estate management up in uh, Wrexham back in the late nineties, I think it was, and uh, I did estate management. And on my first year, there was a like a retreat that Cadu had organised, and as it was, it wasn't anywhere exciting. It was literally down the road in Llangollen. <laughs> it was just like. 10, 20 minutes from my, from my home, as it yeah. as it was. And it was just a kind of, I can't even remember the full detail, but it was a retreat they organised. We talked about the importance of, of property and the impact. And I can't tell you how much it opened my eyes to just our built environment. Because where I'd, I'd you know, had, had grown up on a, you know, on a council estate, yes, there were country parks and things around us, but they're not heritage property as such. And so it was a, a real eye-opener for me to come from a different background to start to see that. And it really sparked my interest then in, in property and how I, you know, then went and, and did my my career. So lots to thank Cadu for. I mean, this was 25 plus years ago now. I'm sure it's uh, all changed, but well, there's a lot I of good work. You're employing me for two and a half years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't stay there very long, to be honest. Mm. So how did you get into, I'm interested you know, so as a as a child, were you always interested in in building and construction? And... Uh, I suppose so, to some degree. I had family members who were in construction as well, but uh, you know, I, I left school in 1976, and I and I became a bricklayer, and then I realised I should have worked harder in school because 1976 is like today. It was a very hot summer indeed. Mm. I was working on a construction site, and I found it hard work. So then I decided I am going to work hard. And in bricklaying college, I suppose I was top of the class in, in most of the subjects. And um, I remember one of the lecturers said to me, I was only about 18 at the time. He said, oh, you could do this. I said, what do you mean do this? He said, you could teach people this. I said, well, I'm just learning myself. So he must have saw something in me uh, to say, well, maybe I've got that sort of thing in me where I could teach others. But my uncle was a construction lecturer in Brighton, what would be Brighton University. And I suppose he mentored me really in terms of going forward. But certainly then by the mid 1980s, I had my HNC. I thought, that's it. Now I got all my qualifications. Then I was heading up groups of people and I was signing off their approval to go to college to do higher level qualifications. So I thought, God, let me know. I'm going to be working for one of these people soon unless I actually achieve more qualifications. So I did the CIOB exam. I never went to college. I just, I looked at all the information, passed papers, got a few books, and I, and I just passed exams first stage, second stage, and then I went on to went on to RICS. But unless I had um, passion for it and a genuine interest in it, 
I wouldn't have been able to motivate myself uh, to go as far as I did because I've all, I was always interested in learning new things all the time. And not just in terms of the technical side of what we're doing, also the way we manage things, the way we mm. manage the services. I mean, I had over 20 guys working for me in the 80s and when I was in my 20s, you know, uh, that it had to be organised, you know, because we're talking about tens of millions of pounds. It had to be organised. And so looking at the way we all, before the digital age as well, looking at the way we can organise ourselves properly does give me that buzz as well. One of the things I'm doing at the moment, for example, is um, I developed a a quality management and compliance certification scheme for the Chartered Institute of Building. And we're delivering pilots at the moment. Now, it's nothing to do with heritage. It's about doing it properly and about being organised and making sure that, you know, the great design which is done is actually implemented on site and goes through all the different stages. So when we decide that this is what we want to achieve at the very beginning. Let's make sure with all the management practices we put in place, we actually achieve that at the end. So it's not just a technical interest I've got. It's a managerial interest. It's an historic interest as well. So if I wasn't interested, I wouldn't be working five or six days a week every week. You know? And I think that's the thing. That's the thing, isn't it? It's not just about learning a, an academic subject, if you like. It's all the different ways you can look at that yeah. subject, you know, how it's managed, how it's created, how it all what will happen in the in the future it's variety um, really mm. and variety is the thing that interests me i do lots of different types of things mm. i just do one thing and i know there's some today as they'll do residential property inspections every day i couldn't do that you know i, I gotta do different things because i want to do different things um i'd like to ask you about your your courses because on your linkedin i saw a slide and it was a, a retrofit circle or something Tell me a bit about your course, the retrofit type courses that you do. I, I was just interested because I thought, oh, that's a, an interesting model to help understand and do the checks and balances as to, you know, what, what to watch out for. Well, there's quite a bit of history to this, to be perfectly honest, because um, when I was working with English Heritage, my area of activity was education and standards. And so I used to represent them at BSI and anything else where standards were being produced. And I worked on a set of national occupational standards for the improvement of energy performance of older buildings. Then I went to work for CADU and I left CADU running our own business here now. And I was when I was in CADU, I was asked to contribute to the development of training in the retrofit of older buildings. And about 20 odd of us were involved, a lot of people involved. And we, we delivered pilots in Glasgow, Derbyshire and Llandarcy in South Wales. And when I left CADU, a CITB contacted me again and said, do you want to work with us and our National Construction College, turn that week's course into a two-day course, you know, see if we can do that. So I was recruited by them. I developed the course with them. I helped get it, get it accredited by the Scottish Qualification Authority to be a, a real qualification. And, and then they said to me that we changed our mind now, John, we don't want to deliver this course. Why don't you deliver it yourself so well i'm not a training company you know I, i'm a consultancy and I, I contacted some other training companies that weren't interested so we set up a training company called the environment study center and so for many years now probably since 2016 2017 we've been delivering a two-day course on the energy efficiency improvement and retrofit of traditional historic buildings and i've had over a thousand people on that course and for years i never run it very often three or four times a year, that would be it. Then past 2035 came out, and then I started delivering it twice a month. And it does take an holistic approach to buildings. It covers building pathology. 
It covers the uh, analysis of buildings, uh, how we should be retrofitting them, and also dealing with the heritage values of a building as well and how we manage that. Unfortunately, everything, everything in that course is something I've done in my career or doing now or my company do. Uh, And so I suppose that's why I was chosen by CITB to actually develop that course. Since that time, I think there's about six organisations that deliver this course now. But uh, Yours is the best. It is definitely (laughs) the best because I can tell you that I actually do this work, whereas there are other organisations, they're just training organisations, they deliver lots of different courses. But we have all sorts of different people, ranging from many chart surveyors, architects, retrofit installation companies. We've had many people from Historic Environment Scotland on it, English Heritage on it, Historic England, even people from overseas, Republic of Ireland. But it does take an holistic approach to improving the energy port. In all the way I've been talking to you today, I think you probably understand, I talk holistically about yeah, all yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. And that's what the course is. And it does achieve a qualification that's uh, required by PAS 2038 and PAS 2035. And so, you know... What, what I'm always interested in is what people then do with it afterwards. Because sometimes, you know, if you're working on projects or going to be tenders, you know, it can help you win that work and come in, you know, as part of your plans or whatever. But, you know, if you're an average resi surveyor, how are you going to use that knowledge? So, right, you learning it and it's in your head, but where's the opportunity to then make an impact, you know? Well, in what you said about getting work, yes, it does. If you're working to past 2035, past 2038, for many roles, you, you've got to have that qualification. For some people, they're light bulb moments whereby now they understand things a lot better and they do things a lot better. But also in respect of a, a residential surveyor complying with the home survey standard, um, where you've got to look at the EPC and look at how good it is or how accurate it is and about the measures being recommended from it. Many people who've been on the course find it very useful in that particular role because EPC's RDSAP is not a very reliable method. It's been developed as a cheap and cheerful thing to do in order to pay people as little money as possible to go into a property for half an hour and take all the information to produce an EPC. And four out of five times, I would say, it underestimates the performance of traditional buildings. So when it's saying you're going to make all these savings by doing all this work, mm, a bit of sharp practice there, I'd say, because you're not going to a lot of the time because, because the process already underestimates the performance of the building as it is. Now, the other problem with it, of course, it recommends these measures, maybe half a dozen measures, and it's, it would be a foolish thing to do to just go and install all those measures because you do not know the consequences of installing them on other things in the building and on other measures. It hasn't been, the EPC does not work that out. So on the course, I take people through an exercise using a retrofit guidance wheel, which shows you the impact that one measure has on another. And I use it in looking at past 2035 because... In past 2035, the retrofit coordinator, which is the kingpin, you know, the guy overall in charge, at an early stage in the process, they'll be working out what measures to install. And if you go above five measures, you're going to be in risk path C. Many people don't want to go into risk path C because you've got to do a lot more, put a lot more resources into managing mm. that. So they want to go in risk path B. But if you use the retrofit guidance wheel, you're never going to be just doing more than just five measures because you've got to do a lot more than that. 
the scope for improvement is a lot more than five measures. Mm. And also, if you just do five measures, there may be unintended consequences that the wheel will help you work out. And therefore, just looking at the EPC may be a bit dangerous, I would say. I'm not a fan of the EPC. I'll be honest, I think there's a, it's difficult because when it, I remember when it first came out, I just moved from being a surveyor on the tools to running a complaints team or giving technical advice to a a team of administrators at a corporate I used to work for. And I'd missed out on all the training that we had for EPCs. I was basically given a manual and said, you'll deal with any complaints that come in. And literally the next day, I remember it was February and they just started coming in. And in one short month, I had 176 complaints about EPCs from homeowners who didn't understand. And I remember one the first complaint that I dealt with, one lady, and she told me that she worked for the government. And this was all statistical nonsense. And she couldn't work it out. And it was something to do with if you change the light bulbs, it takes into account the heat around it. And meant she had to have a different boiler. And she had a pellet boiler or, or something or other. And I just say, yeah, what I didn't say is your government that brought it in is what I felt felt like saying at the time. And it's really difficult because I know there's a lot of surveyors out there who actually train to be domestic energy assessors who knew a lot about energy, really passionate about that. And then it just sort of just got cut away, if you like. They didn't become members of the RICS when all of that stopped. Um, And that's where the RPSA organisation had its roots. You know, and so I think there's a lot of surveyors out there who do have a good interest and knowledge, but it needs to be refreshed and see how you can bring it into the work, brought it into the, the work they do now. It seems as though it's become so devalued. You know, you get paid 35 quid or something, if that, for doing it. The number that we see in the surveyor hub, the community group that I, I run, so many that are wrong. And it's almost just a paper exercise. Estate agents don't tell you about it. Now, I know there's changes on the rental side where you've got to have a minimum number, I think, uh, rating uh, coming in. And it was only, you know, we talked about you know fiscal measures at the start. It's only ever going to make a difference when someone affects them, their pocket. But it just seems such a one size fits all. And clearly the UK housing market is just like that, isn't, isn't like that. Clearly, you're not necessarily a fan either. What would you replace it with? Or how do you think? Well, well, that's the problem, isn't it, really? I mean, at the moment, EPCs cost very little to produce. If you want to do it properly, you're going to have to consider how a building is used for for start. And EPCs give it a standardised rating of this is how this building's used. There's so many hours on the weekend, Mm. so many hours during the week. It all depends on the occupant, you know, a family with kids and a dog. And it it does. It doesn't give... It doesn't give the real performance. You know, you look at all these default values for, for U values. So it's all being produced. I mean, S is the word, isn't it? The standardised nature of it is, is the issue, whereby it does allow you to compare a property with each other. But I think not enough people know how flawed it is mm. and how inaccurate it is. So you may not be able to do a proper comparison. But any PC should reflect the way the buildings use and, and properly reflect the external environment because that is how you will really know how well or not that building is performing. But have I got a methodology up my sleeve to say this is the way we're going to do it? No, I haven't. But somebody needs to work it out mm-hmm. because at the moment, chasing the energy bands so you, a property can be let out could cause a lot of problems mm-hmm. because a lot of the things that you think you need to do to reach that energy bands may may not 
ensure that the building performs any better. In fact, it might perform worse. You know, we, let's think about the cavity wall insulation saga. A lot of cavity wall insulation is very well installed in the right building. Fantastic. But there's a lot of cavity wall insulation that's had to be removed because it was installed in the wrong building, in the wrong place, in the wrong condition, mm. creating lots of damp. And a damp wall can be over a third less energy efficient than a dry wall. So far from actually improving the energy performance, it makes the energy performance worse. But the energy rating in the EPC will be better. And this is where it sort of comes full circle, doesn't it? You know, what, yeah. what we talked about before about the wrong, yeah. you know, trying, trying the wrong things. And um, yeah, it's, um, I don't know how you don't get so <laughs> more cynical about it. I mean, I remember just before EPCs came out, I remember, I think in England, they used to have a, an English housing stock, stock condition survey. And they used to have data and, on the condition of the properties in, the, in the England or the UK. And that stopped. And then I think they sort of the EPC then sort of took over, I suppose, in a uh, in a way. It's, it's all giving them data for something, isn't it? But um, yeah, it's um, for me. I I think there's massive opportunity because we've got an appetite for a lot of homeowners and a lot of people out there now who want to do something. And even if they can start small, some practical things that can be done makes a difference to their energy bills and everything else, you know, right the way through to let's install something fancy on the roof and a windmill in the garden. You know, there's a huge range, but by giving people some signposting, you're giving them options which empowers them, which makes people feel like they can doing something towards it. And that's how we then start movement for people coming forward, isn't it? Repair the building, draft proofing, put curtains in front of your front door as well as your window. Yeah, yeah. You know, gutters and all those very, very basic things. And the test then is looking at how much energy you're actually using or not using because you've done all those things. I mean, that's... And maybe, maybe, John, it's maybe it's a fashion thing because saying putting a curtain in front of your door sounds a bit like your gran and granddad back in the day. Well, and maybe if you made it fashionable, maybe we can get the... Kardashians right. have curtains in front of their doors and the public yeah. will go for it. Well, that reminds me of when I went to North Wales, I was I was speaking at an event in uh, in Cat and uh, near McCunthleth. And on the mountainside there, on the corner of a road, major junction on Snowdonia, you have this pub and it's a hotel as well. And I stayed in that hotel. And it's, you know, bear in mind the climate there in the winter is quite harsh, mm. snowing. But there weren't any curtains on my bedroom window. There were these uh, like uh, shutters you put inside. And whereas you go in some hotels, they leave a chocolate on your bed. I knew there were going to be problems in this hotel room because what they left me on my bed was a hot water bottle. (laughs) But you didn't say no. (laughs) I had to have the hot water bottle. It was freezing. John, it's been so lovely to talk to you today. Thanks ever so much for joining me. You're welcome. It's been nice speaking to you too. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website, lovesurveying.com. And don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference. It helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.